to see that everybody survived what I like to refer to as Ice-mageddon 2013. Um, Lexi and I were talking the other day about how we really missed you guys. Um, it's really weird when you go two weeks without seeing one another. I don't know. It, it was Matt, Matt and I were talking in the back at the end of the, the meeting, and he was like, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I was like, I was trying to avoid saying that. But, um, you know, it, it, uh, it definitely does, I guess, as, as cheesy as that sounds. But um, Lyle said he enjoyed uh, his own worship service last week, getting some, getting some rest. What, I don't know how you said it. What did you say? Yeah, last week was a good service. <laughs> and uh, I, I, this, this sounds kind of cheesy too, but honestly, the other day I was telling Lexi, I said, you know, I'm just not really in the Christmas spirit this year. You know, like, here I am doing all this prep work in the Christmas story and planning these Advent services and stuff, but I'm just not there. And I don't know, it was just really strange. Like, all of a sudden, we start singing this morning and seeing Matt and Mars and everybody up here uh, and then hearing you guys, I was like, all of a sudden, just transferred right into the Christmas spirit. So I don't know what that means, but um, I don't know. I just joy filled my heart this morning as we gathered to get today um, together, singing to our Lord, celebrating, you know, his his first Advent. Looking forward to his second. But um, I know last weekend we we had to unfortunately cancel our Saturday night Christmas get together at the Essers. We are going to be rescheduling something. In the in, you know after New Year's, um, maybe maybe even for the Super Bowl, we're not sure yet. So stay tuned. We will we will be having some sort of get together in the future. And today we are con- continuing our Advent series in Luke. And I encourage you to come back next Sunday, and then also on Christmas Eve for uh, the rest of our Advent series. If you if you happen to be in town, then um, some of you know that my daughter's middle name is Joy. Uh, we named her Sydney Joy, and so far she is really living up to that name. Um, we refer to her as a bundle of joy. We, we sense that that is who she is. I mean, she spends 95% of her time smiling, and it's great, and I'm like, Lord, if you could just send us more kids like this, that would be awesome. Um, but one of the things that I love about Joy is that it is something that exists in spite of circumstances. It's one of those things that transcends, you know, how good or how bad things are around us. Um, One of the most joyous experiences in my life uh, was on a day that was one of the most difficult days of my life. Um, Lexi and I uh, were going through a really difficult time as a season of ministry at, at one church was was ending, and some, some friends of ours invited us over to lunch on this particular day. And as we sat around their table, eating together, telling stories, rejoicing in, in who God is and, and, and who he had been to us, um, even in that, that difficult time, we were able to just experience this intense amount of joy, despite the fact that things weren't going well. And they weren't going well for our friends either. At the time, uh, this this uh, friend of mine was unemployed, and their mortgage was, I think, two or three, if not four payments behind. And yet, there around their lunch table, as we sat, our family and their family, joy was just 
exploding in all of our hearts, despite what was going on. Now, joy is something that all of us have experienced at some point in our lives. But if, if you're like me, I'm guessing that it is also something that feels really, really hard to come by sometimes. And really, I think the way I would describe it is, is in, our, in our practical, everyday life, joy can be elusive. Kind of this thing that's just slippery and it's hard to grab a hold of. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, it kind of feels like our pursuit of joy kind of feels like we're hunting for Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or some mythical creature. Sadly, too many of us experience the harsh reality of a joyless life. And no matter how much we want it, no matter how hard we try to pursue it, we just can't find it. And so today I want to talk about how we can experience lasting joy. I mean, is there a way, how, how can we experience a life that is full of joy? And we're going to be in Luke 1, 39 through 56. Luke 1, 39 through 56. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you need one, there should be one there in front of you. And as we look at Mary's song in this passage, we're going to see three things about her own experience of joy that I think are important for us to grab a hold of. And then after that, I will give us three takeaways that I think will help us as we pursue joy in our own lives. And before we we read the text, I want to briefly set the context of where we're at. So two weeks ago, when we last met together, we we spent our time in Luke 1, uh, 1 through 24. And that was the encounter where Zechariah is met by the angel Gabriel. And he's told that his barren old wife will bear a child, and he doesn't believe, and then he's mute, and his wife does conceive. Well, and then the, ne- the next passage that, that falls between that and where we're going to be today, that same angel, Gabriel, goes to the Virgin Mary of Nazareth and tells her, you're with child, and he's going to be the son of the Most High God, and you're to name him Jesus. And unlike Zechariah, Mary actually believes and responds in faith to what the angel says. And then the angel also tells her, oh yeah, by the way, your relative Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is with child. And then when we get to where our passage is today, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and then she praises God with a song. And so that's where we're going to be today. But uh, before, we, before we read, I want to pray for our time together, and then I'll ask you to stand with me uh, as we read the text. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are here in this place with us. We sense that as we, as we sing and as we worship and as we remember Jesus and what he did for us in his cro- on the cross and in his resurrection and what you have promised in his future return. Um, we rejoice that you are truly a God that is with us. But we also know that even knowing that, sometimes our lives lack abiding joy. And so God, I pray that you would use this time to draw us close to you, that we would hear from you today, that you would speak with clarity to our minds and our hearts, and that you would help us to respond with humility and with obedience. And I just pray that, that in a very real way, your spirit would come and just 
invade our hearts as we look at your word today and continue to worship your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand as we read this. So Luke chapter 1, 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. All right, you can go ahead and take a seat. So in this text, as we read, Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house, at Elizabeth and Zachariah's house. She just goes there immediately as soon as she's heard this message from the angel Gabriel. And then Mary, this pregnant teenage virgin, and Elizabeth, this pregnant, barren, old hag, just rejoice together. They're so excited to see one another. And then after greeting one another, Mary just burst out into song. And I thought about like orchestrating this little theatrical thing like where I was reading the text and then all of a sudden like one of our women just ran out and started singing those verses. I was like, I don't know, that might not go over so well. But what I want you to picture here is think of this scene almost like a Broadway musical or an episode of Glee. Now I don't watch that show because I hate musicals, but Think of it like that. So they're just kind of hanging out in the house, talking, and all of a sudden Mary's just like, ah, and goes into this song. It, you know, it really kind of, that captures the, the emotion that's going on here. But as we look at this, I really do want to pay attention to some things that Mary is finding her joy in. And, and I think that that will help us in our own pursuit of joy. So look at the first few verses in 46 through 49 with me. It says, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. All of this, these, these first few verses, all of that is intensely personal language. Mary 
specifically praises God for who he is, but for who he is to her and for what he has done for her. In verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. And in verse 7, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary recognizes her own need for God and his individual mercy towards her. Then in verses 48 and 49, she sings of how God has personally blessed her. In verse 48, where he's looked on the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself, and in 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And it's really important that we catch what's going on here. I mean, this is Mary, who's from Nazareth, which is like a tiny little bitty town, and nobody important is from there. She's this teenage girl from this obscure place, and yet she understands that the God of the universe noticed her and that he has done great things for her, that he cares about her. See, Mary understood that while God is the Lord, he is also her Savior. And while he is sovereign over the entire universe, he cared about her personally. So the first thing that I want to point out is that Mary rejoiced in God's personal work for her. She rejoiced in God's personal work for her. If you want to follow along, there is an outline on the back of your bulletin. But this is important for us to catch because just like Mary, God notices each one of us and he has personally done things for each one of us. And, and we'll talk more about this later, but experiencing a life of joy is, is really, it, it begins with understanding and celebrating God's personal care and work for you. Let's look at the next part in verses 50 through 53. It says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So in these verses, Mary continues to praise God, but her, her subject matter turns from how God has blessed her and who he is to her personally to God's general and, and kind of overall interaction with people. And what sticks out to me as I look at these verses is that there are basically two groups of people that she sings about. And one group gets favorable treatment and blessing from God, but the other group gets unfavorable treatment and really rejection and, and just punishment from God. The first group is described this way. She says throughout there, she, she describes them as those who fear him, those of humble estate, and hungry, the hungry. That's the first group. And they graciously re receive great things from God. He gives them mercy, he exalts them, and he fills them with good things. That's the first group. The, the second group is described this way. They are the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, the mighty, and they are the rich. And these folks justly receive bad things from God. He has scattered them. He has brought them down from their thrones, and he has sent them away empty. And the difference between these two groups 
is really one thing. It is how they respond to God himself. The first group humbly responds to God in worship, and they acknowledge who he is and live life in accordance with that. But the second group, they dishonor him, and it is really rooted in their pride. And so this really, you know, when you read, see, this, see these two, like some of the phrases there that kind of seem a little strange is the hungry and the rich. And it's like, oh, so God treats people based on how much they have? No. It's that the hungry recognize their desperation for God and the rich think that they don't need him. So it's really about a condition of the heart is what, what is going on here. So to me as I read this, and I don't know if you read it this way, but when I think of her singing and praising God for this first group and what happens, uh, you know, what God does for them and his gracious work on their behalf, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I'm like, okay, I understand that. I can track with that. It, I mean, obviously God is worthy of praise for being merciful and giving grace to people who are humble. But what seems kind of odd as you read it is like she's praising God and she's rejoicing in the fact that he has justly meted out punishment on this second group. I mean, this, this, this proud in heart, this mighty, this rich group. I mean, she's praising God that he has not given them mercy, that he has given them the opposite. But here's the deal. If God is completely righteous and he's completely holy, then it's not just okay or permissible for him to treat these folks who will not acknowledge that and in their pride completely rebel against him and dishonor him, it's actually the right and fitting thing for God to do. She's understanding this in the light of who God is and what he's worthy of, and so she's praising him for punishing those who fail to do that, who fail to acknowledge him and live life in accordance with who he is. God subduing his enemies and meeting out punishment to those who are deserving sinners is something that is absolutely worthy of worship because it's in accordance with his very character. In fact, this is really all over the Psalms. David praises God for this kind of stuff every other page, it seems like. And it's even in parts of the New Testament and other, and other books of the Bible as well. And so it's really, it's really about who God is and the fact that he's worthy of worship from all his creation, and anybody who fails to give him that is worthy of whatever punishment they receive. And so Mary, in the first part of her, psalm, her song, she rejoices in God's personal work for her. And then in the second section, we, we see that she rejoices in God's general work for all, just the way that he interacts with all of the people that he's created. And then let's look at verses 54 and 55, and we'll see that she transitions really into a third section, switching from the general back to the specific. Look at the verses with me. It says this, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to, his, to, to, Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary focuses in this last couple of verses on God's work for a particular group of people, Israel, 
she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In the, in the text that Carissa read this morning, in, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, our, our Old Testament reading, God said to Abraham, Abram at the time, Go and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Mary is referring to that promise, that promise of God to bless his nation, Israel, which is the nation that God had made out of Abraham, and and his promise to bless all the families of the earth. And what she's doing, she's taking this ancient promise, and she's tying it to this message that she's received from the angel Gabriel and recognizing that God is fulfilling what he had promised long ago. And she is rejoicing in the fact that that promise is finding its fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah who God is sending into the world, and he has blessed her with the complete, unbelievable miracle of being the one who will bear this child. So Mary is rejoicing that God is giving his greatest gift, Jesus. And that's the third thing we see, is that Mary rejoiced in God's national work for Israel. God's national work for Israel. And so, something that's kind of weird, you may or may not have caught it, depending on how, how closely you were observing the tense of these, uh, it'd be easy for, for anyone to not catch this. But what's really interesting is that in verses 50 through 55... Mary is talking in the past tense. She's using past tense verbs here for things that are yet future. Things that are going to happen in the life and ministry and victory of Christ's death and resurrection. She's singing of them as though they're they're in the past. And why is she doing that? She's doing that, I believe, because her faith and her confidence in who God is and his ability to keep his promises is so strong. To her, it's as if these things have already happened. She's looking forward with eyes of faith into the future, rejoicing in those things as if they are already a reality. And so, she's really a model of faith for us. And if you and I are going to experience lasting joy, I believe we've got to develop the kind of faith that believes God is who he says he is, and that he will do the things that he says he will do. If we want to be people who experience lasting joy, we have to cultivate gratitude for things that haven't even happened yet. To have that kind of faith, to have that kind of hope. And really, as we look at each one of these three things we've talked about more this morning, you know, Mary rejoicing in God's personal work for her, his general work for all, his national work for Israel, if you see an, a thing that kind of is a, is a foundation or, or a common thread through all of that, I think it's this. It's that joy is the fruit of gratitude. Joy is the fruit of gratitude. Each section of her song really boils down to that. And the reality of life is that when our hearts are grateful, focused on what we have, 
we are able to be incredibly joyful. But the, the, the opposite of that is also true. When we are ungrateful and we focus on what we don't have, it's incredibly difficult to be joyful. And so joy is not really dis- dependent upon circumstances. I would say it's really impacted, if not dependent upon, gratitude. So it's not about what we have or where we're at in life. It's about choosing to see our lives and see what we have and what, we, what we've been given as a gift, as undeserved, as grace, as mercy. Gratitude is key when it comes to joy. So those are, those are three things that I wanted to, to point out and then that, that kind of underlying principle. But I also want to give us three things that you can kind of take into your life today, this week, for the future, for how, like, how can we practically rubber meets the road kind of way experience lasting joy. And the first thing is this. We can experience lasting joy as we remember what God has done, as we remember what God has done. So if you want to live a joyous life, I believe it starts with celebrating what God has done for you. God has looked down on each one of us. He's blessed each one of us personally in unique ways. Regardless of how your story compares to the person sitting down the pew from you or in front of you or behind you, I can say with confidence that God has blessed each one of us and he has been faithful and cared for each and every one of us in unique ways. And it begins with remembering those things. God has met your physical needs. He's met your spiritual needs. He's given you family. He's given you friends. He's given you a church to belong to. And, I mean, the list just goes on and on. But like Mary, God has also looked down upon you. And he has seen you. And he has cared for you. And in intensely unique personal ways, and it's really important that we remember those things. Really important. And then I think it's also important that we remember the way that God has been faithful to people throughout history and even all around us. And so it's important for us to tell the stories of God's faithfulness to one another so that we can kind of fill up that tank of remembering who God is and what he's done. And it's good for us to read of his faithfulness to the saints in the, in, in the Bible. It's good for us to read the stories of martyrs and missionaries and all kinds of people so that we can remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done. So experiencing lasting joy, I think one way we can do that is remember what God has done. The second thing is this. We can remember what God has done, but we can also rely on who God is. Rely on who God is. And this is the way I would put it. If you want to experience lasting joy, you have to move, at some point, you have to move from the historical and the theoretical to the personal and the practical. And at some point, you have to start living by faith and not just celebrating other people's faith and, and kind of watching. At some point, you can't stay a spectator. You've got to become a person who gets in the game. And while there is joy in watching God's work, there is a completely different and even greater and more 
wonderful type of joy in participating in God's work as we trust and as we follow Jesus. In fact, I would say this. Experiencing lasting joy is impossible apart from experiencing God himself as we actively trust Jesus. And I want to repeat that because I think this is important. Experiencing lasting joy is impossible apart from experiencing God himself as we actively trust Jesus. So if you want to experience lasting joy, you've got to rely on who God is. And the third thing is this. If you want to experience lasting joy, you've got to rejoice in God's greatest gift, Jesus. You've got to rejoice in God's greatest gift, Jesus. If you place your faith in Christ, the Bible tells us, it says that we have received every spiritual blessing. That in the riches of Jesus, we have everything that could ever matter. I mean, that is a promise. It is truth to grab a hold of. That is a reason for us to rejoice. Think about it. I mean, this is just a, a, an inkling of what we have. Because of Jesus, our eternal debt of sin has been paid for by his shed blood. And by his resurrection, we've been forgiven forever. We've been declared righteous and acceptable in the sight of the almighty, holy, righteous God. We have been reconciled to him. We have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as a seal of our eternal security. As Josh talked about, we don't have to fear death because we already have the Spirit living inside of us, confirming that we are God's children and we will not die eternally. The Holy Spirit also will empower us to live a righteous life that honors God, the kind of life we were created to live but cannot live apart from Christ. And God is with us, and he is for us always. And we will spend eternity with him in perfect, unhindered relationship where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, or even one iota of the consequence of the fall. It means that we are forever God's and he is forever ours. If there's any reason to rejoice, that's it right there. Now, we had a year as a congregation here where a lot of us have experienced a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, death of family members. And I've watched people go through that and maintain their joy, and it's because they understand this. They understand that the story doesn't end at the graveside service for those that are in Christ. That's a reason to rejoice. And I want to I really strongly encourage you, if you are lacking joy the number one thing you can do is sit around and meditate and wrap your mind and heart and ask God to help you celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's accomplished for you. That is the biggest antidote to misery or, or a, a joyless life because that is the greatest news in the entire world. But Mary rejoiced in God's personal work for her. She rejoiced in his general work for all and his national work for Israel. But really, what we see here is her joy was completely wrapped up in this gift of Jesus. And if we're going to experience lasting joy, we've got to believe that joy is found in Christ and Christ alone and, and beg God to help us believe that in our toughest moments and to drive us back to the foot 
of his son. And so as you prepare for the birth of Christ, you know, as we as in this Advent season we anticipate his his coming and, and we celebrate his first first advent and we look to his second advent, his return. I really challenge you to do these things, to remember what God has done, to rely on who he is and to rejoice in his greatest gift, Christ, because I think that will give you the kind of heart that is able to fully receive, accept, and enjoy the gift of Christ. But I think that while there is this individual aspect to experiencing joy, there's also a communal aspect of it. And what I've seen is that a joy-filled group of people is completely attractive. It's completely magnetic. And I would say that whether or not we are a joy-filled congregation, a joy-filled group of followers of Jesus, is probably one of our biggest um, opportunities, or, or if, if we don't have it, detriments to being the kind of church that honors Christ and sees the gospel go forth from us. You know, if we proclaim a message of a risen Savior, but we are joyless, that falls flat on its face. But on the opposite of that, if we proclaim a risen Savior and our lives also reflect that we have joy because of that, that is super attractive to somebody who is needing joy. And so I want you to imagine with me what might happen if we became increasingly became a church marked by this intense, everlasting joy. Imagine what God would do through us. Imagine how God might glorify his son right here in East Dallas in the Lakewood area if we became people who truly valued Jesus above everything else, found our joy in him, and everywhere we went, we didn't even have to try, but it's just pouring out of us because we're so full of it. Our language, our actions, everywhere we go, when we're at work, we're, when we're at, walking the dog through our neighborhood, when we're at the gym, everywhere we go, there is just this joy that we have because we are so full of gratitude and worship for Jesus. Imagine what God would do if we were a people like that because I believe that we can become that kind of church. We are a joyful church, but I believe we can kind become the kind where the joy is just contagious and just flows out of us without even trying. It just happens. As we celebrate and rejoice in Jesus. Let's pray.